Would you find Isaiah in your Bibles? While you're turning, let me remind you of the context of this message. In November, we decided to give, or the two Sundays that that, uh, I preach, we're going to give a preview of what we're going to be doing all next year. That is, hearing the call of God, finding your purpose in life. Don't miss next year. Don't miss next year. We want to give you some of the some of the outline of what you will be looking for next year before uh, Christmas comes up. By the way, we have the Advent books. Uh, many of you enjoy those daily. They help you in your daily devotional. Right outside the door, pick one up. You got a couple of bucks, throw it in. If you don't, don't worry about it. But it's really a neat way to get centered on preparing for Christ instead of preparing for Christmas. There's a world of difference in those two. Now, starting with Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Did I say Isaiah 8? Isaiah Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, this is about 740, 739 B.C., I saw, this is Isaiah talking, one of the unusual instances that he is giving his autobiography. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him. Now this is the only place in the Old Testament in the Bible where seraphim are mentioned. Seraphim being the Hebrew plural for seraph or the burning ones. You you hear uh, seraphim and cherubim are falling down before him in that great old hymn. Well, here's how you know. Seraphim and cherubim are um, angelic beings. And seraphim surround the throne of God. You can relate this. Seraphim seat, cherubim surround the chariots that take the throne of God. Cherubim, chariots. You can remember those for trivia, for your Bible trivia games that I know you do so often. Seraphim were surrounding the throne of God. Each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called out to another and said... Now this is an antiphonal song. One is saying to another and the other is singing back. That is going on continually. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You remember that. Remember the first chapter of Colossians. says everything was made for him and by him and through him. Everything was made. Remember that. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now isn't that a strange reaction for someone who has just seen God? Let me tell you two reasons why his reaction is like that. First of all, it is declared in the Old Testament, you shall not see God and live. So therefore, he probably thinks he's going to die. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He confesses a specific area of sinfulness. The other reaction is very normal. You know, when we're out in the world, we can kind of come, and we do, we compare our righteousness to whoever's next to us. We say, I may not be all that great, but 
I'm better than him. You know? We look for people who were better than because of this thing called ego. By the way, I heard this week that ego was an anacronym for easing God out. I like that. I like that. But we look for people who are... But when you're confronted, you're in the very presence of God, you can't help but think how woefully sinful and inadequate you are because the imperfect is being compared with the perfect. Remember Peter, when Jesus performed the miracle, fell down on his face and said... Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Remember the little fella down from the Pharisee who said, Lord, you know, the comparer, I thank thee that I am not like this man. I do all this stuff. And there was a little guy on down the hill, just a little fella standing in the presence of God, saying, Forgive me. Have mercy on me, for I'm a sinful man who's in the presence of God. And the inadequacy that Isaiah feels. Remember when the Lord went to Moses? Moses came up with an excuse. You don't want me? I stutter. I'm not good at this thing. Remember when the Lord first went to Jeremiah? You don't want me? I'm too young. On down the ages, everyone who was in the process of being called always had a sense of inadequacy. Listen, if you have a sense of inadequacy when it comes to the Lord, you are on solid ground. That is your your ministry position. Sense of inadequacy. Now, listen to this. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Remember, he's just confessed that area of sinfulness. Because he's in the midst of being called, and you know when you're being called, you need to take care of those specific areas of confession that you need to make. And the seraphim, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So all you need to do is confess it. First John 1 John 1.9 if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's always done that. I've given you a couple of questions on the bottom of that sheet to help you in this process as you are being called because you will be very, very aware of your own areas of sinfulness. Now here's what I'm going to preach on. Then the Lord, the voice of the Lord, then I heard, I'm sorry, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. If you decide that you want to stick the process out and discover why God made you instead of somebody else, discover the specific personal call on your life, I want you to remember three things. I want you to remember, first of all, that what we have sensed as God's general call, what what would seem to be a general call from God is not general at all, but very, very personal. The question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That seems to be a general call, doesn't it? Who shall I send? But think about this for a minute. How many people are having this vision? One. One. 
How many people in this audience? One. See, it's not a general call at all. It is a chance for Isaiah to respond. It's not a matter of curiosity on God's part. It's a matter of specific response on Isaiah's part. One of the things I love about doing weddings is when the bride comes down, usually on the arm of her father. I tell you what, the older my kids get, I've got three boys, but the older my kids get, the more I appreciate the personal response that is called for from that father. Because in the ceremony, the words are, who giveth this woman to be married to this man? Now, I have yet to have some yakel in the middle of the crowd stand up and say, well, I'll do it. See? <laughs> Why? Because everybody knows the question isn't for them. There's an audience of one. It seems like a general call. Who give this woman to be married to this man? You know? But everybody knows it's a very specific call, especially the father of the bride. Because he's been called to that time. I tell you what. I have seen fathers that have hardly been able to answer. I've seen fathers flash 20, 22, 24 years of that girl being their little girl. And they look over at this guy and they think, do you realize you're not good enough for her? This is my little girl. She's always going to be my little girl. And now this guy is saying, who give her away? You talk about a personal call. That's personal. There's nothing general about that. When you hear the call of God, it's personal. Personal. Second thing I want you to remember. When the Bible says... Whom shall I send? When God says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? I want you to remember that the call of God is never for just for a specific incident that you've got to wait around and get the answer right where you are. You remember when Jesus walked to the people who he wanted to include in his great adventure, he said two words. What were they? Follow me. Two words. Follow me. It was a process. It was a journey. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. It was not just a truth. It was not just a supernatural endowment of life. But it was a process. And the way you found what God had for you was that you started walking with God. You started walking with God. Sometimes when it seems that there is to be an immediate answer. Sometimes when it seems like God is just asking you for something that you know about that you can agree to, I want you to remember this. Sending is a matter, A, of having absolutely no idea what you're being sent for or where you're going. God waited for an answer before he ever lined out what he had for Isaiah to do. Isaiah said, well... Here am I. Send me. Now, let me teach you the difference between a covenant and a contract. 
in America, especially in America, with our uh, legalistic society, we want to know, send where? For what? To whom? See? And it conjures up, just tell me what my job is. Give me a job description. And then I'll see whether or not I can do it. God never does that, does he? He never does that. Because the difference between a contract and a covenant is a covenant you are called to a person. Not to a task, not to a circumstance, to a person. Marriage is a covenant. When you stood, those of you who are married, when you stood and you faced your spouse and you said, I will. Who give? Uh, will you take this man to be thy lawfully wedded husband to live together in a holy state of matrimony? Wilt thou love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and health and forsake thee, forsaking all others, keep thee only unto him so long as you both shall live? And you said, I will. You had no idea what you were signing up for. <laughs> you had no idea what was to come. See? I've had people come into my office and say, Look, I know I said for better or for worse. I didn't know it was going to be this worse. <laughs> Why? Because a covenant is specifically vague. It's not to a task. It's to a person. When you looked one day at your honey and say, Let's have children. And your honey said, oh, that's a good idea. Children would be nice. And you made a covenant together to have children. You had no idea what that entailed. No, nobody could have described to you what that would mean. Whom shall I send? For what? You have no idea. And I'm not telling you, because if I tell you, you'll never have them. No one ever told me that what my kids cared about, I'd care about. I carry around four people in this heart all day long. When my kids are broken hearted, I'm broken hearted. And I had this picture that, well, at least when they're 18 and they move out of the house, then I can detach. Well, they ain't 18 yet, but I can tell you right now, I'll never detach. And you know that because we are in covenant. They will always be my kids. No matter how old they get, no matter how many kids they I won't treat them like kids. But my heart will be bound inextricably in their lives. When God calls you, you say, I can't respond till I know what I'm responding to. And God is saying, oh, yes, you can. Because you're not responding to a circumstance. You're responding to me. I'm the point. Not that. Second, A, or B of this, of this second point is, we have been conditioned to think that we have to understand and get relief in the present before we can go on into the future. The Bible says, who shall I send, who will go, and we think we're talking about the next block. Well, I can go as long as it's on this block, because i got an awful lot of problems right now. i got an awful lot of agenda right now. 
And there are several things I've got to resolve in my life before I go anywhere. And even if we are released to go and say, okay, I want to follow, there's a sense in which some answers better come pretty quick or I'm going to get discouraged. You know what? It is so arrogant of us to believe that we could understand the depth and the breadth and the length of God's purpose for our lives in a sermon or two sermons or three sermons or many sermons. Okay, tell me the purpose of my life. You go ahead and just give it to me right now. I'll decide whether or not I want to live it out. Let me tell you a story. There is, uh, there's a tribe, or there have been, I've, I've read this story several times. There was a tribe of pygmies in a certain section of Africa. Now, my stock uh, we, uh, comes from European pygmies, but that's a different story altogether. <laughs> this was in Africa. They lived in a forest in a jungle so dense, so thickly wooded that they never saw the vast expanse of the sky. It was not unusual for them when they went out of camp to go through areas where plants were just brushing their face on either side. That's how close everything always was to them. When some Westerners got wind of this tribe, they wanted to go in, especially the anthropologists wanted to go in and see what effect those living conditions would have on the perceptions of those people. And so they asked permission from the government to go in and establish a relationship with these people, and they did just that. They got the permission, they went in, established a relationship. One day, after they had established that relationship, they asked for a certain number of those tribesmen to go on a journey with them. They didn't tell them where they were going or what they were doing. But they asked for them to go on a journey. And so they led them days and days and days through the thickest of underbrush, through the thickest and densest of jungle. And days and days later, the Caucasian guide shouted that they were almost to their destination. And so the anthropologists and the biologists asked the tribesmen to stay right where they were. And they would call them forward when the time was right. Meanwhile, these Westerners went out into this clearing that was really the tip of this gorgeous, beautiful cliff scenery. They were thousands and thousands of feet high, sheer drop. And you looked over the African savanna, the plains. And you could see way miles off in the distance, little, little wildebeests, you know, getting drinks out of the ponds. Finally, when all was set so that they could watch the reaction of the pygmies, they called them out. And the pygmies, pygmies walked out of this jungle and just started walking, almost walked over the edge of the cliff. They had to literally jump and grabbed them back. And then as they stood there holding them, the pygmies spotted the wildebeest and started doing this. And the more their thumb and forefinger went together, the more agitated they got. See? They pulled them back 
to the edge of the jungle and tried to discern what they were thinking. From living in those close quarters, they had absolutely no idea how down, down could get. See? They'd never seen anything that down. They had absolutely no idea how far, far could be. They were trying to pick those little animals up and eat them and put them in their robes to take them back to the tribe and they couldn't get them. They couldn't understand why. They had no perception of the length of breadth. See? When the Westerners explained to the pygmies as well as they could how far was down and how far out could be several of them got scared ran back into the jungle never to come out again you know what I believe that American Christians are very much like those pygmies we, we want our Christianity to answer our problems of the day see if I got stuff bugging me you give me an answer right now we have no idea of the depth of God for our lives. You know, give me something that'll make me money, that'll make me healthy, that'll make me smart, that'll give me answers. Give me something right now. We have no idea of the farness of the call of God. And when we say, it will take years in your journey to discover your purpose, there are a number of you who will say, uh-uh. No? You've got to give it to me now, because I haven't got that kind of patience. You'll never hear the call. You'll never hear the call of God. You will really believe that Christianity is just to make you a better person and to give you a church to go to so that your kids don't go too far off the deep end. Friends, American Christians are pygmies for what God has for us. Because we live in a little world filled with problems and everyday distractions. And if Satan can get us into the mindset that God is here just to give us victory over those little everyday distractions, he's won. Even if we have victory over every one of our present problems, he's still won. Because he has kept you from the distance God has for you to go. Send. Go. One more point. Isaiah heard God say, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? If you are to hear the call of God, you will have to discern the difference between personal fulfillment and individual fulfillment. God wants to give you personal fulfillment. You will never have individual fulfillment. God did not design us like that. I see Americans running out trying to find fulfillment alone. It will never happen. Let me tell you the story Vernon was referring to. I, I love books on every category. I love because I believe that God's imprint is in every single discipline. Sociology, psychology, philosophy, um, um, biology, geology, physics, everything. So I was reading a book this week by a microbiologist. And he told the most fascinating story about slime. Now, I hope none of you are going out here to eat. If you are, don't eat escargot because this is going to ruin your dinner. There are 
little creatures, one-celled, called, popularly, slime mold, and they eat bacteria. These creatures, at a certain stage of their life, are, ri- are literally called mixamoebae, mixamoebae, uh, yeah, amoebae, um, and, and they are just perfectly content to stay one-celled animal as long, one-celled animals as long as they have enough bacteria to eat. Or, if they really get hungry and they run out of bacteria, they eat each other, which is not unlike the church. Now, there comes a time when they have run out of food that one or two or three of these little mixamoebae will secrete a hormone, cyclic AMP. This acts as kind of a, 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 a... a signal, a gathering signal, because all of the little mixamibai who take a whiff of that hormone, all of them gather together, they climb up on one another in kind of a fungal Noah's Ark, they climb up on one another, and when they all get assembled in order to go together, two things happen. First of all, their genetic structure changes. They have a chemical reaction that was required as an individual that shuts off, and they have a new chemical reaction that is required for group living that turns on. Secondly, they form this thing that crawls along and leaves a trail of slime behind called a slug. That's what a slug is. A slug is an aggregate of little one-celled animals who are hungry. Now, guess what happens if they crawl along and they find a bunch of bacteria? They disaggregate. They all go apart from each other, changing again their chemical reaction, their genetic reaction, so that they can all live as individuals again. Then when they get hungry, they come back together because one or two of the leaders secretes this cyclic AMP and then they crawl on each other again so that they can live in the direst of circumstances. You know, that's exactly like the church. People who have hungers come to the church and gather because they've been out there trying to knock it off individually and they can't find fulfillment. So we get together. But if something comes along that's pretty good and pretty fulfilling individually, what do we do? We go away, don't we? We don't need each other anymore, do we? And then when we get enough need, we come back. What does the Bible say? He took our feet from the slime pit. He took our feet from the slime pit and gave us something better, something more solid. The church in its most primitive form is not much unlike a slug. Moves about as fast as a slug. Has about as much appeal as a slug. People simply trying to get their needs met. Got to get fed. But there's another sense that it's important for us to remember. When God fulfills us personally, He's not doing it for Individuals, He's doing it for all of us. In our aggregate form, we need each other. 
And that's what God is trying to tell us. Whether we are in plenty or in need, we were made for each other. Who will go for us? Who was he talking about? All of us. The reason you need to find your destiny is because I benefit from it. The reason I'm in your corner is because you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for me. You may have a personal hunger that drives you, but when you benefit, I benefit because God made us from the very beginning for each other. I got about three days. I'll end with this. I got about three days in to the or four days into the prayer retreat that I had gone to outlay the sermons for next year. And Becky's 91-year-old grandfather died. Um, what a neat guy he was. So we just we flew up to Indiana, and I was to do the funeral. And this guy had served the Lord for 60 years. He was one of the finest guys and went to the funeral, and there were probably 100 ministers there. Because they all knew him. The bishop was there. The bishop that I left to come down here was there. But we're still okay. I mean, we're cool. I said, we're cool, aren't we, Bish? Yeah, we're cool. (laughs) All the district superintendents. You know the verse, as I prayed about what to say there, the verse that came to me was Hebrews 1140. You know, in Hebrews 11, they talk about all of the faithful, all of the people who saw the promises but did not reach the promises. And in 1140, it tells you why. It says, without us, they are not complete. Without us, they are not complete. As I stood above that casket... I was so grateful for the foundation of the saints that had gone before me. Without them, we'd have to start all over again. All of us stand on the shoulders of someone else. And here was a man. I was standing on his shoulders, but you know what? He needs me as much as I needed him. Because that's why God made us. Without you, I won't be complete. And without me, you won't either. I don't care whether you're in want or in plenty. That's how God made us. And when you hear the call of God, you will know that it's not just for you. It's for all of us. It's for all of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Lord God, speak your words today. As you spoke them to Isaiah, we know that we are not called with his call. We are not chosen to do what he did. You have made us for a special purpose. All of us, personally, for a special purpose. I would ask you to let that question, though, ring in our minds. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? There are a number of hearts here this morning that when they hear that question, they want to say, I will. Some have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. They're just trying to be good on Sunday. But some, Lord God, have something inside them that say, look, I don't care how long it takes. 
I don't care how much individual gratification I've got to give up. I want to know why I was made. And I want to walk with God no matter what it costs and no matter how far I have to go before I find out. Here am I. Send me, they will say. And I stand with them. In Jesus' name, amen.